0: Now I want to read one verse of scripture that has come to mean a great deal to me in my ministry. And prior to serving with the Mississippi Baptist Convention, I served for 30 plus years as a pastor of a local church in Tennessee and in the New Orleans area of Louisiana and in Mississippi. And this verse has really become a core part of my sense of identity and In verse 5 of chapter 4, this is what Paul wrote to young Timothy. Maybe by the time he wrote 2 Timothy, Timothy wasn't quite so young, but I think compared to Paul, he will always be considered the the youth of the tandem. And this is what he wrote. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This has become a core verse in my sense of who I am and and what I do. It's a guidepost of sorts. Uh, Several Olympic cycles ago, there was a contestant in the 50-meter rifle event whose name was Matt Emmons. And I really clued in on him because uh, I am an Emmons by descent, and so I thought perhaps there was some connection Uh, by virtue of relation, and uh, I I zeroed in on him because he was doing quite well in his event. In fact, uh, he was coming to the final shot, and all he had to do was hit the target in order to win the gold medal. I mean, he was a shoe-in. It seemed obvious that he was going to win. There really wasn't even a close second, and Matt Emmons took his posture in the gate and went through his pre-shot rhythm, and then he took aim took a deep breath, gently released the trigger, made the shot. Not only did he hit the target, but he hit the corner of the bullseye. And yet he didn't win the gold medal. In fact, he didn't even win the silver nor the bronze medal. In fact, he finished eighth in the event. And the reason that was the case is because In the anxiety, and I'm sure the apprehension of the moment, uh, he took his posture, and he was in lane two, but accidentally aimed at the target in lane three. (laughs) And after it was all said and done, he was questioned about that, and he made one of the great statements. He said, I made a great shot, but I hit the wrong target. I've always remembered that line because I think that line is appropriate for a lot of us who follow Jesus Christ. I think that line is appropriate for a lot of us who pursue ministry of any sort. We hit the target, but unfortunately the target we hit is, is not the target we should have been aiming for to begin with. And I think Tim, uh, Paul here, as uh, he writes uh, these parting shots to Timothy, identifies for us a very, a very clear target to which we ought to be aiming. And uh, in essence said, if uh, you hit this target, you will indeed fulfill your ministry, this this is the objective of those of us who follow Christ. This is the objective of those of us who pursue ministry uh, vocationally or avocationally. We we want to fulfill the ministry that God has given us. And the key to doing that uh, is set forth in, in verse 5 in the three statements that precede the, the conclusive remark. Uh, and uh, the first of those is this: if we want to fulfill our ministry, we need to always be sober-minded. Always be sober-minded. Now, some of you I know have studied Greek. Uh, For those of you who have not studied Greek, let me give you a little little quick Greek lesson. The Greek word that is behind the word sober-minded is a word that is pronounced nepho. And uh, it is a word that in its root meaning uh, carries the idea of being calm or under control. Uh, Self-controlled is sort of what the word means. Over the course of time and usage, it became closely associated with sober-mindedness. And so it was a very appropriate word for Paul to use as he was giving these words of instruction to Timothy uh, and uh, encouraging him to fulfill his ministry. He said, be sober-minded. Now, I I simply want to acknowledge here the the connection between fulfilling ministry and the mind. I, I know that you're preparing for final exams next week and your mind may be in other places at the very moment. But your mind is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given you. And if you look at Scripture, it's obvious that that the mind is so very important, uh, whether it is being leveraged by the enemy or whether it is being utilized by God Himself. If you think about the fall itself, in Genesis chapter 3, it was the mind that became the avenue of attack for the serpent in the garden. He said, did God really say to you that you couldn't eat from one of the trees in the garden. And he planted a seed of doubt in the mind of Eve. And that seed of doubt ultimately germinated and grew and produced the fall. It was through the mind that the enemy attacked her. And then if you look at the balance of Scripture, the, the wise writer in Proverbs uh, reminds us that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, was asked by a scribe, an expert in the law, which is the greatest of all the commandments. And he literally had hundreds, thousands of commandments from which to choose if, if you take the context of the day and, and throw the scribal interpretations into the mix. And Jesus didn't stutter, stammer, nor bat an eye. He said the greatest of all the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and Mind. In the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul said, He who sets his mind on things above sets his mind on life. He who sets his mind on things below sets his mind on death. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, Whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, whatever is noble, think about these things. The mind is so very important in the process of Growing in your relationship with God and fulfilling the ministry that He has given you. In fact, I I was reading some time ago an article that was focused on the memory capacity of the human mind, and this was not a religious article, so these are not religious experts that uh, uh, were sharing what I'm about to share with you, but uh, they indicated that the human brain uh, has a memory capacity equivalent to about two and a half petabytes of memory. Now, you're, you're all scholars, and you probably are well-versed in, uh, in these technological terms, but I was not really familiar with a petabyte, so let me see if I can bring that down to earth for you. A petabyte is a million gigabytes. Okay, now we're talking. I understand gigabyte because my, phone, uh, my phone's memory is measured in gigabytes, my computer's memory is measured in gigabytes, and so a petabyte is a million gigabytes. And so our brain has a memory capacity of two and a half petabytes. That means we have the memory capacity of two and a half million gigabytes. Now, again, that, that's rather aloof. I, I struggle to understand that. So let me see if I can bring it down to earth a notch lower. Uh, if your brain was sort of devised like your DVR on your television and you, uh, and you wanted to record uh, two and a half petabytes of... Um, of television recording, why anybody would want to do that, I don't know, but let's just say, for the sake of the argument, uh, you decided you wanted to do that, uh, that would mean that uh, you would be able to record three million hours of television broadcasting with two and a half petabytes of memory capacity, three million hours of television broadcast. Again, I don't deal in millions that often, so let me see if I can bring it down just a notch lower because I'm a really simple-minded guy. So you want to record three million hours of television broadcasting, you go home, you turn on your television, and you leave it running 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 300 years, and you have three million hours of television broadcasting and Unreligious experts tell us that this is the capacity, the memory capacity of the human brain. Now I know, you're studying for exams and you're thinking, there's no way that my mind has that kind of memory capacity. And I would be with you in that struggle, I assure you. They say that the human brain is about 60% water and I'm convinced that most of the files are retained in the water of my brain and I don't know what happens to them. They drown somewhere in the process. But my point to you is this, that even according to those who really make nothing of God Himself, they recognize the magnificence of the human brain. It is the greatest gift that God has given to us in terms of human creation, and we therefore ought to be good stewards of the mind that God has given us. So I challenge you, use it to its fullest for the glory of God. This is the way to fulfill your ministry. Now, if Paul ended there, it would be challenging, but uh, understandable and and perhaps even doable. But unfortunately, Paul continued. In verse 5, he said, not only should we be sober-minded, but we should endure suffering. Suffering is an inevitable part of this world in which we live because this world is broken. The world was broken with the fall. By the sin of one man, sin entered the world And that sinfulness touches every aspect of creation and the brokenness is felt in every aspect of life. And because of the brokenness of this creation, we ought therefore to expect suffering to occur. And and I will say this, if you're a devoted follower to Jesus Christ, and if indeed you are pursuing a lifestyle of ministry, you can expect that the target on your life is even larger than normal. And the suffering may be greater than you would experience otherwise. Expect it. And as you expect it, deal with it in faith. Now, we experience this suffering in all sorts of ways in ministry. I mean, if you're engaged in a local church in any capacity, some of you are, I know you're going to have a knothead or two in churches. I'm convinced that knotheads uh, don't reside in Mississippi only. I'm sure there are a few knotheads that attend churches in Vermont as well. People who think that they know more than God himself. The first little church that I pastored was uh, just outside of Jackson, Tennessee, in Milan, Tennessee, and, and I was about 20 years old when they called me to be the pastor, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't know that I didn't know what I was doing. That's how bad off I was. And I went there on my first Sunday morning to preach. And after the Sunday morning service had concluded, uh, I had a a lady who sat toward the back approach me, and and her name was Ruth, Miss Ruth. And uh, she said, Now, preacher, preacher boy, I think was actually her address, which is never good. (laughs) Preacher boy on Wednesday night when we meet for prayer service, I don't want you to do like every other pastor has done that we've had over the last 25 years. And I said, what do you mean by that, Miss Ruth? And she said, I don't want you to bring a lectern out and set it up in the center aisle and do a Bible study slash prayer service. I, I want you to stand behind the pulpit on Wednesday night. This was an odd request or demand to me. I was not expecting this because, you know, that's not... That's not customary in Mississippi, and so I said, well, Miss Ruth, why, why do you think that I should stand behind the pulpit on Wednesday night? And she said, because there is power in the pulpit. And when preachers preach the word, they should preach it from the pulpit. Well, I had planned to do, Dr. Ballard, exactly what I had seen my childhood pastor do all of my life, and that is set up a lectern on Wednesday night and do a prayer service slash Bible study. And, and now Ms. Ruth has pulled the rug out from under me. So I fretted over this all Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, consulted with some of my professors at Union, talked with friends who were already serving in churches. Wednesday night comes along, and you know what I did? I pulled out a lectern, I put it up in the center aisle, and I did a prayer service slash Bible study, and I braced for Miss Ruth. We had a closing prayer. I led the closing prayer myself, and when I said amen and looked up, Miss Ruth was standing right beside me. Uh, She had a tendency of letting her glasses slide right down on the edge of her nose and looking at you over the top rim of those glasses just scared me to death. Uh, And she said, I thought I told you not to do that, preacher boy. And I said, "Well, Miss Ruth, you did indeed, and I respect what you shared with me. But I've been thinking about this and praying about it, and I've consulted with those that I have a great deal of confidence in, and and this is what I've decided. I, I decided, Miss Ruth, that Paul the apostle traveled to a lot of different places, and he didn't have a pulpit everywhere he went. He went to Galatia and Cappadocia and Philippi and Ephesus, and he preached. And I'm I'm quite confident that he didn't have a pulpit everywhere he went, and nonetheless, he preached with power." <laughs> And I thought I had her. I'm I'm like, how can you argue with that? And uh, she took her glasses off and she said to me, well, preacher boy, if I had been living back then, I would have told Paul he better get in the pulpit too. (laughs) Have you ever known a knothead like that in a church you've been in? Those who think that they have the authority to tell even God himself what to do and how to do it, and I can assure you that if you pursue ministry in a vocational manner, Even if you pursue it from a layperson's perspective, you're going to run into those kinds of individuals and they are going to be a pang in your side. But I want to go a little further than that and say this. Not only are you going to experience suffering at the hands perhaps of even good people that you work with in the context of Christian circles, you're going to experience suffering because the enemy is going to be aiming directly at you. And that suffering may come in forms that you would never expect. It may come in forms that you would consider to be overwhelming. And how you respond to that suffering is going to preach a sermon to those who are around you. It's going to share a message of how much you really do believe that God is real. August 23rd, 2017 was probably, Dr. Ballard, the hardest day of ministry I ever had as a local church pastor. You mentioned Jason Morrow just a moment ago. Jason was working as my student pastor. I was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Columbus, Mississippi. We we had two campuses, two two satellite, uh, a main campus and a satellite campus and and I was meeting with one of our young deacons to disciple him and we were meeting every Tuesday morning at about 730 and we were working our way through some uh, different uh, biblical texts and praying together and such and we met at 7.30 on August the 23rd, 2017, and at about 8 o'clock, my phone began to buzz. I had it on the table, but I typically did not, uh, did not answer it whenever I was having such a meeting as this, and I'd instructed my wife to just keep calling and keep calling if indeed it was, it was an emergency. So it buzzed and it buzzed, and then it buzzed and it buzzed, and once it buzzed the third time, I picked it up to look at it, and it was uh, the church office who was calling me. And I recognized something must be wrong, so I, I told my young friend Aaron. I said, Aaron, hang on just one second. I called the church office, and my assistant answered, and, and she said, Dr. Parker, uh, you need to get to the emergency room as fast as you can. Uh, Jason is there with his daughter, Eliza. So I abruptly ended our meeting, hopped in my car, made my way just the eighth of a mile it was to the hospital from our facility, and... and uh, When I walked in the door, this is what I discovered. I discovered that Jason was dropping off his two daughters, his two youngest of five children at at our church preschool. The youngest, uh, younger of those two was about two, and he dropped her off. And then he was going to drop the four-year-old Eliza off. And while they were en route to her classroom, she seized. And she had a seizure that lasted for about 45 seconds to a minute. And uh, then she came out of the seizure and appeared to be okay. But Jason recognized that something was wrong, uh, put her in his vehicle, and they headed toward the emergency room of Baptist Hospital in Columbus, Mississippi. Uh, They were walking in the emergency room door, and she had a second seizure. And this time she seized again for about a minute. And, uh, they, and then stopped and appeared to be okay. The emergency room personnel saw the second seizure. They immediately ushered them back to a, an observation room, and uh, they called the doctor, and they were taking in information about uh, her age, weight, so forth and so forth, when Eliza had a third seizure, and this time she went into cardiac arrest. This was about the moment that I walked into the room and I was standing there with my good friend Jason and his wife Lauren who had just walked in prior to me and when she went into cardiac arrest they coded and every medical personnel in the emergency room rushed into the observation room and they began to do CPR on her chest compressions and the whole deal and uh, this is a four-year-old petite little girl I don't know if you can imagine how violent that is on a four-year-old little girl it was one of the most awful sights I've ever seen in my life and they worked with her for about 20 minutes and after about 20 minutes which by the way was probably about 15 minutes longer than they should have and after about 20 minutes of working with her finally the doctor called a stop to the process and he looked at my friend Jason and he said sir I don't think there is anything else we can do is it okay if we stop I had my arm around my friend Jason and I felt him shaking and he said, yes, sir. Thank you very much for what you've done. The medical doctor and all of the staff left the room, and I'm standing there with my friend Jason, his wife, and we're standing over the bedside of their four-year-old little girl at Liza, who is now dead. And I'd pastored for nearly 30 years at that time, and I'll be honest with you, I had no idea what to say. I stood there in silence. After a couple of minutes, I finally choked out... Jason, would you like to pray? And he said, yes, sir, I would like to pray, but before we pray, let's sing a song. And I said, okay, what do you want to sing? And he started singing. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. And we walked out of that room not in defeat, but in victory. Not with a cloud of death hanging over our head, but with an empty tomb clearly in sight. And I'm going to tell you, since that day in 2017, I've been close friends with Jason Morrow. Our bond was sealed on that very day, as you might well imagine. And I have never heard him once question the goodness of God. I know he must have thought it. I know it must have been a, a, a seed somewhere in his spirit, but never has he questioned it. In fact, he has celebrated the goodness of God in ways that, has prompted, that have prompted people across Mississippi to look at him and say, that man really believes what he says he believes. Endure Suffering, and finally, and, and quickly, and I'm I'm wrapping up. I'm coming in for a landing here. I just, but I do want to say one quick word about this last statement because I think it's so very important. Paul said, uh, "Endure suffering, do the work. Uh, endure suffering, always be sober, and finally, do the work of an evangelist." Evangelisto—that's the good Greek word. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Uh, it's used in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 to refer to the gift of evangelist. It's also used in uh, Acts chapter 21 to refer to Philip, the the evangelist, and it's used here to, uh, pros- to prescribe for us how we ought to live. We ought to live by doing the work of an evangelist. This is who we are. You know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion these days about what is wrong with the church and, and it would be easy for us to blame the problems in America on politics. It would be easy for us to blame the problems in America on cultural antagonism toward Christianity. It would be easy for us to find some out to blame. But I'm going to be very honest with you. My perception is this. We are the ones to blame because we, through the course of time, have not adequately shared and effectively shared the gospel as evangelists and consequently the door has been left open for the enemy to come in and wreak havoc in many of our cultures and I know that the culture in Vermont and the Northeast in general is a very challenging culture I want to assure you that it is tough in Mississippi as well we're the most church state in the nation according to most polls and yet spiritual darkness runs deep in the state of Mississippi I know if it is there what it is it must be exponentially worse for you where you are dealing with uh, systems and, and antagonistic spirits that we are yet to face in Mississippi Do the work of an evangelist. Do it methodically, do it incrementally, but do it. And if you'll look at verses earlier in chapter 4, you'll discover that the key to doing the work of an evangelist is simply sharing the word. Paul said to Timothy, be instant in season, share the word, share the word. Let me close with a story, and then I'm going to pray, and Dr. Ballard will come and close us. but I believe that the Word of God is His Word from beginning to end. It is inerrant truth without any mixture of error, infallible in every way, and even more importantly than that, I believe that it is the seed of life that sprouts in the soul of a human being that produces eternal life. We, therefore, can depend upon the power of the Word in our preaching. I pastored in New Orleans for 12 years before I moved to Mississippi, and I tell people in Mississippi, I don't think I would say this in Vermont, but I tell people in Mississippi, every Mississippi pastor ought to be sentenced to New Orleans for about six months. (laughs) It's a spiritually dark place. I never had a dull day there for 12 solid years. And uh, I was pastoring Metairie Baptist Church, which was a white-collar affluent church, uh, rather strong church there in New Orleans. And uh, we had uh, a lady in the church uh, who, with her husband, had owned a water bottling distribution company. And uh, she came to me one day. Her husband had deceased. She was a widow. And, and she said... Um, Uh, Pastor, I don't believe that I've ever really been as good a steward of what God has given me as I should have been. I'd like to be a good steward of the commodities he's given me. I said, well, what do you have in mind? And she said, I'd like to give 10,000 bottles of water to the church if you can figure out a a creative way to utilize it in ministry. So I took that as a challenge. I went back to the church, huddled up our team, and we began to think creatively about how we could use 10,000 bottles of water. This is what we came up with. In our discussion, we immediately gravitated toward John chapter 4, where Jesus had that conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. And uh, He said to her, If you just knew who it was who was speaking to you, you would ask me for a drink of water, and I would give you a drink, and you would never be thirsty again. And so we devised a ministry project that we called Project Living Water. And so we ordered 10,000 Gospel of John booklets. You may have seen these. They're little red booklets. Very prominent in the South. You can go into any Southern church and if you open enough drawers or cabinets, you'll find a stash of them somewhere, never having been used. And so we ordered 10,000 Gospel of John booklets. Uh, We hand-stamped, this is primitive, I know, we hand-stamped on the back of those those little booklets the name of the church, Metairie Baptist Church, our address, 401 Cotterford Boulevard, Boulevard. Uh, the, the telephone number and my email address. And we went down to the French Quarter. Jackson Square, nonetheless, set up right in front of St. Louis Cathedral between one Saturday morning between a tarot card reader and a palm reader. And we're handing out bottles of water. We thought we're going to give them a bottle of water and we're going to give them the living water, the Gospel of John. And in a matter of about three hours, we gave out 10,000 bottles of water, just lickety-split. And when it was all said and done... We packed up, I'm heading back to my car, and it's about 12.30 on a Saturday, and I am walking right squarely down the middle of Bourbon Street. Now let me just say, if you've never been to New Orleans, just a little helpful hint for you, okay, the only appropriate time for a disciple of Jesus Christ ever to walk down Bourbon Street is about 12.30 noon on Saturday. That's the only appropriate time, and it's a little dicey even then. And as I walked down Bourbon Street at about uh, lunchtime, do you know what I saw littered all along the alleyway of the street, the gutters of the street, those little red Gospel of John booklets? I was so disheartened. I picked all of them up. I didn't want the Word of God left in the gutter of Bourbon Street. I also didn't want anything with our church's name on it left in the gutter of Bourbon Street. I picked them all up, put them in my pocket, and I left terribly discouraged and was disheartened for about two weeks until one day I went to my computer, I opened up my email, and I had an email from an address I didn't recognize, and this was before the days of everybody wanting to fish you or spam you, and I opened it up and this is what it said. It said, my name is so and so, and you don't know me and I don't know you. I live in New York City. My family and I were in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago and we were walking through the French Quarter and somebody handed us a bottle of water. On that bottle of water there was a little red book. I snapped it off, put it in my shirt pocket and didn't think anything else about it. When I got home, I was unpacking. That shirt fell out of the bag and the little booklet fell out of the pocket of that shirt. I picked it up, he said, and began to read it and I had never read this before in my life. He said, I knew about Jesus, but I knew no detail about Jesus at all. He said, I was so intrigued by it, I read the entire booklet, went to work the next day, shared with a friend that I had a little booklet that was called the Gospel of John. He said, that's from the Christian Bible. You ought to find a Christian pastor. He can explain to you what it means. He said, I I made an appointment with a Christian pastor at a church not far from where I live. And he said, That pastor explained to me the Gospel of John, and even more importantly than that, the main character of the Gospel of John, Jesus himself. And he said, I'm simply writing you an email today to thank you for giving that bottle of water with that little booklet because as a result of that, I am now a disciple of Jesus Christ. James in chapter 1 said, the implanted word has the ability to save your soul. There were no four spiritual laws with that little booklet. There were no steps to peace with God. No Roman road marked out. It was just the Word of God and 166th of the Word of God at that. And yet 166th of the Word of God had the power, once it was implanted into a man's heart, to bring about eternal life. This is the way to do the work of an evangelist. So you want to fulfill the ministry God has given you? Be sober-minded. Endure suffering do the work of an evangelist. You have been most patient. God bless you. I want to pray for you and then Dr. Ballard will come. Lord, thank you. For the faculty, the students who are gathered here, I lift up Dr. Ballard. I pray for your blessings upon all of them, that you would renew their minds, that you would uh, strengthen their spirits, and Father, I pray that you would help them in the work that they do to bring honor to you. I pray especially for the students as they're preparing for final exams next week, that you would give them clear minds and strong bodies and help them to do the very best that they possibly can. I pray for the faculty that you would grant them the strength that they need during this season as well. And I pray that your blessings and favor would be upon this institution for your glory and honor. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.